Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Thank you for letting us solve a world problem. Today we'll consider the nomination of Ambassador David Hale to serve our country as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs at the State Department. We welcome you and thank you for your service to our country for many, many years. Ambassador Hale currently serves as our Ambassador to Pakistan and has previously served in that capacity in Lebanon and in Jordan. He's a career member of the Foreign Service and brings with him to, to this position over three decades of experience as a career Foreign Service officer, the majority of which has been spent in the Middle East. Beyond his general diplomatic and policy expertise, for which he is widely respected, he has extensive management experience through serving as Chief of Mission at various diplomatic posts abroad. That background is invaluable for anyone assuming this position. The Undersecretary for Political Affairs, or P, is the number three person at the department after the Deputy Secretary of State. The P Undersecretary also serves as crisis manager for the department and serves as an advisor to the Secretary for all major personnel decisions, department policies, and interagency communication. In addition to those duties, the P Undersecretary oversees all of the geographic bureaus in the department, as well as the Bureau for International Organizations, and must therefore manage our financial and personnel resources between the bureaus themselves and our diplomatic footprint around the globe. In the past, it has often seemed that the Undersecretaries for Political Affairs and Management would make these decisions together without much of a methodology and very little transparency. It is my belief that the department would benefit from a methodology that allows decision makers to assess the cost and benefits of allocations while also providing more transparency so that Congress can adequately exercise its oversight role. I want to thank you again for your willingness to serve. Um, and just on a personal note, um, to have someone who's coming up from within the department uh, to be in this position, for someone who cares about uh, institutions and building institutions that will last, um, it's heartening to me that someone from within is coming in this position. My guess is with some of the turmoil that we've had within the State Department, it also is something that really uh, the many members of the Foreign Service that have committed their lives to Foreign Service, I'm sure, are cheering you on today. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me join you in welcoming Ambassador Hale back before the committee. A few diplomats have served our nation as ably and as honorably as Ambassador Hale in some of the most critical diplomatic posts. You seem to have a penchant for challenging posts. And I'm confident that we have the right person for the job. Of course, Mr. Chairman, it takes somebody from New Jersey to ultimately uh, do this type of job. So we're thrilled uh, to have the ambassador before us. But let there be no mistake. If confirmed, uh, you will face not only the immense challenges throughout the world confronting the United States, but also of shaping and executing concrete policies to confront those challenges, which to this date I believe the administration is in many cases has failed to do. If confirmed, your areas of responsibility would potentially encompass any and every issue before the department, from crisis management to the day-to-day -day conduct of our diplomacy to the development of longer-term strategies. So let me briefly raise several core areas of concern where I expect to see uh, you, Ambassador, if confirmed, playing a leading role at the department. It's my sincere hope that someone with your knowledge and experience can help the administration actually develop and implement coherent strategies with diplomacy-led direction. Let me start with Russia. Let me be clear, unlike the President, I do not consider Russia a friend. I believe Vladimir Putin is a geopolitical adversary who presents an ongoing threat to our democracy and global stability. I'm curious to hear what advice you intend to provide the Secretary and the President on how we deal with Russia, from its interference in democratic processes to its use of chemical weapons to Ukraine and Syria. While the administration has taken some punitive steps against some offenses, it has failed to fully implement mandatory provisions under the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. Even if the administration will not act responsibly, Congress will. As you know, Senator Graham and I introduced new comprehensive legislation two weeks ago, and we'd appreciate your thoughts on that bill. Moving to the Middle East, the administration has also flouted the statutory requirement in CATSA 
to provide this committee with an Iran strategy. Reimposing sanctions that this body worked for decades to legislate in and of itself is not a strategy. Trusting Russia to address the Iranian presence in Syria is not a strategy. Similarly, I'd like to understand what our strategy is to address violence in Yemen, instability in Iraq, the tremendous humanitarian crisis and strains on refugee host nations like Jordan and Lebanon, and the pressure that this refugee crisis is creating in Europe. Speaking of refugees, the Trump administration slashed refugee admissions last year and is reportedly pushing for another devastating cut to 15,000 refugees, the lowest since 1980. This president seemed to delight in picking on the most vulnerable people. America is much better than this. Failing to provide refuge to the world's most vulnerable, those seeking shelter from war and persecution, betrays America's values and relinquishes our role as a humanitarian leader. With respect to Afghanistan, how does the administration plan to balance reconciliation efforts with the Taliban in light of our military commitment? I also hope that if confirmed, as you and I spoke, and I appreciate you coming by, you'll pay particular attention to our own hemisphere. I've supported the administration's efforts to use targeted sanctions against Venezuelan officials, but our actions have been largely reactive and a massive humanitarian and refugee crisis now threatens regional stability. I'll soon be introducing a comprehensive bill regarding Venezuela with Senator Rubio, and I welcome your thoughts on that as well. In Central America, our efforts to work with Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala address the violence and political instability driving people to flee are not succeeding. Aside from tearing away children from their parents and locking up asylum seekers in cages, which is both reprehensible and ineffective, what is the administration going to do to address this issue? So there's much work to be done. Yet across the world, and to counter its own uh, national security strat and counter it to its own national security strategy, the administration is eroding support for democracy, good governance, transparency, and human rights around the world. The president routinely praises dictators and congratulates autocrats on winning rigged elections, and his budget request would decimate foreign assistance in support of our interests. I, I want to raise, Mr. Chairman, publicly a concern I raised with the secretary privately which is, I hear that the administration is sending a rescissions package, which potentially would be a devastating blow to the State Department and USAID. And if it does so, and does so in a time frame in which Congress under the law cannot act, which I think would be illegal to do, that will have consequences. Uh, and uh, it's the only thing that we can do to strike back on a policy we believe is not right. So I hope that that's not the case. And I hope the Secretary can prevail upon the administration not to make such devastating blows. I plan to hear how you intend to promote these values across the department in the future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I know you were mentioning that to me before the meeting started, and uh, certainly, like you, will be inquiring towards that end. And I don't know how they could do that legally, but we certainly look forward to seeing how to counter that if that's the case. Uh, with that, um, you, uh, anything you have as far as written materials will be entered into the, to the record. So if you could summarize your comments in about five minutes, we'd appreciate it. If you have people here in support of you you'd like to introduce, we'd, we'd love to meet them. And uh, with that, please begin. Well, thank you very much and good morning, Senator Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of this committee. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I am joined by a high school friend, Carl Werner, and his son, Matthew who drove down from Morristown today to be with us. So. I first want to thank President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their confidence in me to serve in this role, if confirmed. It's a tremendous honor to be nominated to serve our country, President Trump, Secretary of State Pompeo, and the men and women of the State Department as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. I approach this committee and the prospective position with humility and a commitment to serve to the best of my ability, as I have strived to do ever since Ambassador Edward Perkins first swore me into the Foreign Service in June 1984. My call to public service began with my grandparents, Joseph and Elizabeth Clare. They were world travelers who always returned from abroad with stories, books, and pictures of a world beyond our shores. And as a young man, I gained a growing realization that what happened overseas mattered a great deal to our country's security and prosperity. I came to realize that a career in the Foreign Service would allow me to protect and advance our interests abroad. And that was the beginning of my path from Bridgewater, New Jersey, to Beirut and beyond. In college, two professor practitioners had a tremendous influence on my life, retired Ambassador Armand Meyer and future Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Ambassador Meyer taught me in particular the value of quiet diplomacy, 
of the gains to be made through calm, candid, patient, persistent, and behind-the-scenes engagement to achieve U.S. goals. Secretary Albright taught me that our diplomatic strength is rooted in our economic and military strength. She also taught me that while our strength is greatly enhanced through alliances and partnerships, there is no substitute for American leadership. I'm convinced American values are at the core of our nation's success and influence and must remain there for our success to continue. Throughout my career in the Foreign Service, other mentors have included Ambassadors Ryan Crocker, Dick Murphy, Bill Burns, David Welch, and Dennis Ross, all of whom I watched maneuver through complex environments. I've always strived to emulate their firm approach, steady leadership, adept negotiating skills, calm temperament, and commitment to results. I've also had the extraordinary privilege to work directly for and with six of the last seven Secretaries of State, and I'm eager to work closely with Secretary Pompeo if confirmed. During my 34 years in the Foreign Service, I've developed a solid grounding in the work of the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, a role which entails extensive diplomatic interaction in innumerable bilateral and multilateral contexts, as well as the oversight of the regional and international organizations' bureaus. I've spent many years at high-threat posts, including as Ambassador to Jordan and Lebanon, and most recently to Pakistan. It was in Lebanon that I first had the opportunity to work with Secretary Pompeo, then visiting as a member of Congress. Later, during my tour in Pakistan, I worked with him in his capacity as CIA director to free an American citizen and her family from, a, from terrorist captivity. Using my diplomatic skills to rescue an American in distress remains one of my proudest moments. On that note, my service has made me well aware of the many threats our nation faces. These threats are continually evolving, and our diplomatic security teams have my highest respect for protecting our diplomatic personnel and installations. Our ambassadors in the field, backed by the department's leaders and experts, must constantly assess the risk-benefit equation of our presence and activities in often dangerous places. We've had hard lessons over the years from Beirut to Benghazi. Although we absorb those lessons and minimize risk, we must also remember that our nation's security requires an active diplomatic presence on the front lines. If confirmed, I will help Secretary Pompeo put the State Department, which is comprised of my gifted foreign and civil service colleagues and our exceptional locally employed staff at Missions Abroad, back on track. Among my priorities will be crisis management, cultivating international alliances, developing the next generation of leaders in the foreign and civil service, and communicating regularly with Congress. We have the finest diplomatic service in the world, and Secretary Pompeo has set us on the path to strong morale, readiness, and effectiveness. As the President, the Secretary, and the National Security Leadership make and conduct our nation's foreign policy, they deserve the State Department's best advice going up and most effective implementation going forward, drawn from the experience, talent, and diversity of its personnel. I'm confident our diplomatic and civil service will continue to prove their value as an essential tool in advancing a results-oriented foreign policy in the service of our nation. Finally, I look forward to the opportunity, if confirmed, to advancing American diplomacy in consultation with Congress. For 34 years, I've interacted with members here and abroad. I started in a junior capacity as a CODEL control officer. In later postings, I had the honor to come up to Capitol Hill often to consult. I remember traveling to Michigan with Senator Levin to meet his constituents. And as ambassador to three countries, I had the privilege of accompanying members to their meetings with foreign leaders. If confirmed, this body and the American people can have confidence that I will fulfill the Trump administration's foreign policy agenda with professionalism, integrity, and an eye toward results. I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Um, <clears throat> an issue I've raised with Secretary Pompeo and considered to be of the utmost importance is the need for greater transparency, openness, and communication from the department in dealing with the committee and with the American people. Regular press briefings, timely response to committee requests for briefings and information, departmental witnesses for hearings are all essential to make sure that we as a government and as a nation can advance our foreign policy effectively. I trust that you agree and would engage with this committee under the, in that view. I do agree. Thank you. Let me ask you this. If you're confirmed, you'll be responsible for the Bureau of International Organizations. As you may be aware, the Inspector General is currently investigating credible reports that political appointees in the department without Senate confirmation have been systematically compiling lists of career civil servants they feel are not, quote, loyal to the president, going as far as collecting clearance pages that reflect approval of previous president's policy initiatives, in essence, targeting people for doing their jobs. It's the latest expression uh, of something that I think that the, uh, the president doesn't quite understand, 
that those of you in the Foreign Service are committed to the advocacy of policy, regardless of who sits in, in the office. Um, and so um, they take an off to defend and protect the Constitution. What's, what steps would you ensure take to ensure that career officers are protected from retribution for perceived disloyalty to the current president? Well, the alleged uh, behavior that you described I find highly objectionable, uh, if true. I am Bless pleased you. to learn that the uh, State Department is investigating these allegations. That's the appropriate thing to do. Our, we have a uh, very strong independent inspector general, and we have various procedures to deal with any findings that they may uh, uncover. Um, these are matters of law as well as policy. Uh, they would also, if true, create the wrong climate. We want a climate of inclusion. We want an environment at the State Department where people feel free to express their opinions. I think through my leadership of example, as well as making sure that our policies are enforced to deal with these matters, would be the appropriate way to, to handle, the, handle the issue. Let me turn to Russia. Do you believe the intelligence community's assessments that Russia interfered in the 2016 election? Yes, I do. And do you believe that Russia continues to attempt to undermine American democracy? I do. Uh, what would you advise the Secretary and the President if you had the opportunity about how do we deal with Russia? Overall, I think it's important that we uh, adopt a multifaceted approach to Russia. Uh, they are a very difficult country to deal with, uh, that their behavior in many areas is, uh, is unacceptable. I think it's important that we call out these uh, transgressions when they occur publicly. I think it's important that we have a frank dialogue privately to express in very direct terms uh, what we find objectionable and what we believe needs to be changed. I think the resilience of our allies and of our alliance and NATO is terribly important uh, to dealing with this, so we need to reinforce that. Um, and targeted sanctions, I think, can be highly effective in making sure that we continue to increase the cost for this kind of behavior. I appreciate that. Uh, let me turn to Iran. Uh, I am concerned, while I did not support the JCPOA, uh, I am concerned that just unilaterally walking away from it is in of itself not a strategy. Uh, what would you advise uh, the Secretary and the President as it relates to developing a comprehensive strategy in Iran, something that is called for under CATSA that was due in January of this year and it's now August and we have not received? Well, I think that the appropriate strategy at this stage is to maximize our financial and diplomatic pressure on Iran and isolation to build a web of allies who are like-minded who will join us in that effort to neutralize Iran's highly objectionable behavior and interference in the affairs of their neighbors throughout the Middle East, their support for proxy and terrorist groups, to increase the cost of that, and of course to do everything to prevent their acquisition of a nuclear weapons program. We need to multilateralize our effort, though. Uh, and so while our, uh, it's a little difficult when you slap tariffs on your closest allies and, and when you walk away without engaging them in a, in a process that will bring you a multilateralized effort. So we'll, we'll realize consequences on Iran's economy as a result of, of companies uh, divesting themselves in order to avoid American sanctions, but that doesn't multilateralize our efforts. Should we not seek to multilateralize those efforts? I agree. We should. Uh, listen, let me ask you about this, the, the, the triangle, the Central America triangle. If we want to deal with unaccompanied individuals or those seeking asylum, they seek asylum because their choice is to stay or die or flee and have a chance at living. Uh, should we not be making a strategic, comprehensive effort in Central America to deal with some of the challenges that drive people to leave their countries? I, I firmly believe that that's correct. Will you be part of helping to and, develop that? And I would be part of that, yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, very good. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. In your, uh, hello again, this is our second meeting today, so good to be with you. Um, in your prepared statement, you made reference to working with Pompeo, Secretary Pompeo on the release of an American citizen recently is one of the most memorable experiences in your service. Is that right? Can you tell, who, tell us who that is and what the circumstances were? Uh, the Coleman family, um, uh, Coleman Boyle family. She an American citizen married to a Canadian, and they had several children, and it were held hostage in Afghanistan, Pakistan border area for several years. And we were able to discover their location and uh, persuade the Pakistani authorities to act swiftly 
uh, to gain their release from these terrorist groups. And I worked very closely with Secretary Tillerson and uh, CIA Director Pompeo at the time. I'm sure that's rewarding work. That happens a lot more than we really know it happens yeah. in this country, obviously, for secure yeah. reasons. Uh, I shared with you earlier when we met that I had a Pakistani foreign exchange student live with me for a year in my senior year in high school, <coughs> which, as you can tell from looking at me, is a long time ago. But I learned a lot living with a Muslim student from Pakistan for a year about the Muslim faith, about that part of the world and everything else. In the years since then, everything something happened that involved Pakistan, I took a keen interest mainly because I knew Ashfaq Azad, and he and I have remained friends all the years. He's now the, the Caterpillar dealer in Dubai. But my, my question is that Pakistan is a strange bedfellow, I guess that's the right word. They have been an invaluable help to the United States in a strategic location, a very dangerous part of the world. But they've also frustrated me, and I'll speak only for myself, particularly in the Bin Laden affair where he was there for, I don't know, we don't know how many years, but a number of years after 9-11 before we finally found him. And I wondered how cooperative the Pakistanis were throughout that whole era as to why we, he was there, yet we never knew it, and we didn't get him until 10 years later. Is their level of cooperation better today than it was, say, five years ago uh, when he was still there? I would say it's mixed. I, I won't draw the comparison because I, I wasn't in Pakistan five years ago. I was involved in the Middle East. Uh, but it's a mixed record. There are areas where we are able to cooperate very effectively together. There are many terrorist groups that they perceive as their enemy and we perceive as our enemy, and we're going after them, including ISIS. Um, we have very strong programs to help build the resilience of Pakistan. We don't want Pakistan to be in any way destabilized. The problem is that we're not completely in agreement on a key issue, which is the presence of the Haqqani network right. uh, inside Pakistan, which is able to freely conduct operations across the Afghan border. That's the essence of our sharpest difference right now. We continue to work on it. We wish to do so in a way in which we're able to gain the cooperation because Pakistan has a lot to offer. Uh, in resolving the disputes in Afghanistan, uh, including in helping us get the Taliban and the Afghan government sitting together talking about peace. I think maintaining a, a relationship with Pakistan is absolutely essential to, to the, your department, to the sec state, Secretary of State, to our entire country. But it is a very strange partner sometimes in a very dangerous part of the world, vis-a-vis -vis the largest democracy in the world being India right next door, but who are equally important to us as a country. You said in your prepared, prepared remarks about learning so much from uh, and admiring so much Madeleine Albright. And you talked about her strength and her belief in a strong military and diplomacy as a partners in, in the way she ran the, the Secretary of State's office. I agree with that. She was a very adept Secretary of State. Do you, what of her practices do you plan to, to follow and any of the things you learned from her are you going to use in your service? Well, that was one key element. Um, I also think the integration of our economic strategies overseas with our traditional political national security diplomacy is very important, an area that I hope that we can, can work on together. I also think Secretary Albright was very gifted at persuading uh, foreign leaders and counterparts uh, to join us in multilateral strategies to deal with the challenges that we face. Uh, that was something I admired greatly the way she did it. She was firm. She went about it in a very firm, direct, frank way um, and she gained allies by persuading countries that the right cause was to work with us. You know, the situation in New Mexico, uh, I saw an issue on the, I saw a report on the television this morning about the investigation of the sheikh and the blind sheikh in New York, who was ultimately con convicted of terrorism against the United States. But one of the things he had promoted in his teachings in his mosque in America was for the radical Islam to go and colonize in the United States and create things exactly what we have found was existed in Mexico, where they were raising children, teaching them terror, and trying to spread Islam through that twisted uh, view of their religion. Do you see in your experience, and you've been in some areas affected greatly by Islamic terrorism in, in Islamic countries, do you see a growth of that anywhere else, or have you seen a growth of that anywhere else in the world? I think one of the, the elements that we face today that we didn't face before is that this can happen almost anywhere. Uh, in so many different places, we've seen the uh, exploitation of young people uh, 
through this kind of ideology. It's not the Middle East anymore, right? It's happening in the Western Hemisphere, it's happening in Europe. Uh, so again, we need all of our allies, all of those societies that are vulnerable to this, to be sharing ideas together on how to combat this and to reduce its threat to us. Well, I wish you good luck, and I'm sure we're going to benefit from your experience and knowledge, particularly in that part of the world. Thank you for your service to the country. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good morning, Ambassador Hale. Thank you for being willing to consider taking on this position at this critical time in the world, and congratulations on your nomination. <coughs> Excuse me. As I'm sure you're aware, the President on Monday signed the defense bill, and that included a bipartisan resolution that passed this committee, authored by Senator Young and me, to address the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Um, it prohibits the U.S. military from continuing to provide aerial refueling for the Saudi-led coalition unless the Secretary of State repeatedly certifies that the government of Saudi Arabia and the UAE are taking steps to end the civil war, to address the humanitarian crisis, and to reduce the risk to civilians. Now, I'm sure many of us watched the aftermath of the horrific Saudi bombing of a school bus in northern Yemen that killed 51 people, including 40 children. Can you tell me how, if you, confer if you are confirmed, that you'll approach making sure these certifications have been made and that um, the Secretary of State and the Department of State does everything possible to try and get the Saudis and the Emiratis to comply with reducing the crisis in Yemen, especially in view of the President's statement that he doesn't believe he needs to abide by this? Well, I think that we have to approach the situation in Yemen uh, through several avenues. One is obviously to work with the Saudis and the Emiratis so that their uh, air forces and their militaries are uh, using the very best practices to minimize civilian casualties. And we have a training program underway uh, to, to work on that. And, and I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Um, but I think what this resolution suggests is that we need to go beyond that. It's not just about um, our efforts to reduce casualties. It's about getting them to end the conflict, to come to the negotiating table, and to stop um, their horrific collateral damage that's happening as the result of those airstrikes. Yeah, oh, I understand and I agree. I, I think that the, um, the significant effort right now on the political front is through the UN Special Envoy uh, to uh, introduce the, uh, the elements necessary to find a political solution. There is no military uh, solution right. to this problem, and we need to be engaging our Saudi and Emirati colleagues at the highest level uh, to shape that approach. And are we doing that? And is the Secretary of State willing to actually decertify our support for those aerial refueling efforts if he finds and we find that they are not trying to engage in those um, negotiation efforts? I think if we're unable to find the elements that are required to, to, to certify, then we will, of course, have to act accordingly, and that's the law. Um, as a nominee, I, I can't speak for the Secretary of State at this stage, and I'm not fully briefed on the details of the legislation, uh, so I don't want to say anything misleading, but I understand the, the significance of this and the need for us to be in accordance with the law. And if you are confirmed, will you report back to this committee on what you have learned? Absolutely. Um, thank you. I, I want to go to another issue that I continue to be very concerned about, and that is the President's executive order reinstating the Mexico City policy or the global gag rule and expanding that dramatically to include um, all uh, support for health care for people around the world. According to Marie Stopes International, it estimates that 2 million women that it provides services to will lose access to contraception as a result of this policy, and that from 2017 to 2020, this policy, this expansion of that global gag rule, will result in 6.5 million unintended pregnancies, 2.2 million abortions from the lack of family planning resources, 2.1 million unsafe abortions, and 21,700 maternal deaths. That's just one organization that has historically worked with us in terms of funding for health care. 
NGOs have reported that rural communities are being cut off from health services, and in Mozambique and Zimbabwe, HIV prevention services have been disbanded, and that risks the progress that's been made in HIV prevention. So can you tell me what you will do, if confirmed, to try and address those um, deaths that are going to result from this policy, and a policy that's supposed to result in a reduction in the number of abortions is actually going to increase the number of abortions and the number of unintended pregnancies. So how, how do you see following up to address what's happening to the most vulnerable people around the world because of this policy? Well, thank you. I think that's a very key question. And I, I would just say that uh, it, it's largely been outside my arena of responsibility. In the countries I have served, we have successfully managed to maintain our uh, funding programs uh, in, in staying in accordance with the policies. So we've not been, had that kind of disruption in Pakistan or in Lebanon and Jordan. Um, I think the first step for me will be to study the facts. You've just outlined some very disturbing data. Uh, I need to be better educated about that um, and then work with my colleagues to think what the best policy is to, to find that balance between these two objectives. Well, I know that the State Department is doing a report that should come out this fall that will show um, further data on what the impacts have been. I hope that you will take a look at that and actually report back to this committee on what, what you expect to do as the result of what you find in that report. I can assure you I will do so. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Move to Senator Coons. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you, Ambassador Hale, uh, for your long record of service to our country and for your willingness uh, to step forward and to serve again in a very demanding position. Uh, at a time of great challenges facing the United States on the world stage, I'm heartened uh, that the administration has nominated a career foreign service officer and New Jersey native uh, with more than 30 years of experience for this very important position. If there are no Delawareans available, I'm certain that New Jerseyans are the most qualified uh, and capable. Careful. <laughs> uh, let me uh, turn first, if I could, to China. Uh, in a lot of ways, I think China will be uh, our greatest international challenge of this century. Uh, and the national security strategy notes uh, that China seeks to displace the United States in the Indo-Pacific uh, and expand the reaches of its state-driven economic model and reorder the region in its favor. Um, two questions. A, a key part of this effort is the militarization of the South China Sea. Um, as Undersecretary, how would you revive uh, diplomatic efforts uh, to condemn and counter Chinese militarization of the South China Sea, and how will you uh, engage with and reassure our regional allies, uh, South Korea, Australia, Japan, um, of our commitment to the region after withdrawal from the TPP and the, um, I think, unconstructive imposition uh, of tariffs on treaty uh, allies like Japan? Well, I'm a firm believer in engagement. I think the first step will be to continue to ex and expand our diplomatic conversations with these key countries that are uh, you know, bordering that area. Vietnam, in particular, I think is a key partner in, uh, in sort of confronting these uh, inroads by China. Um, I think also that we need to build a united front, uh, which has frayed a bit, perhaps, over time. Uh, that will be a very effective tool. So I would, I would look to, if confirmed, to be involved in that effort. I also think our military presence is absolutely crucial, um, that, that we maintain the freedom of uh, transit through that area is of vital importance to our nation and to our allies. And so I think those are the two key, t t two key uh, pillars to build a strategy upon. Um, the uh, other question I want to ask about China uh, is about their One Belt, One Road uh, initiative as ambassador to Pakistan. You certainly saw uh, ways in which uh, China is using uh, its infrastructure investment um, to extend its reach. They're building uh, ports and highways, railways, and other projects in Pakistan and throughout the region. Um, earlier this year, Senator Corker and I, joined by a very wide bipartisan group uh, here, uh, passed the BUILD Act to modernize our development finance tools, uh, something supported by the administration. Um, do you believe these tools could help us successfully compete with the Belt and Road Initiative? and advance our foreign policy objectives. What else do we need to be doing in the region to be more successful at pushing back on what I see as a major strategic initiative by China? I do think that's a very important tool. And another one would be to, to uh, really work very hard to get US business involved, which can overshadow anything that US assistance can accomplish. If American business is present in these countries, that opens up the field for competition. Um, and I think in and of itself will speak to the 
nations involved about the benefits of work with the United States. Um, in your written testimony, you said, uh, I'm convinced American values are at the core of our nation's success and influence and must remain there for our success to continue. I couldn't agree more. And I think one of our core values, one of the things that defines us is as a democracy that values uh, free press, free speech, independent judiciary, and so forth. Uh, and I'm concerned about the rise of authoritarianism around the world uh, and the failure uh, by our president to clearly defend our democratic allies uh, from aggressive actions by authoritarian governments. Um, so I just wanted to ask whether you believe countries like Russia and China um, see political ideology and values as an aspect of geopolitical competition uh, and seek to advance their governing models uh, against ours and how you think uh, the role of values and human rights uh, should play in foreign policy and what you can do in this position if confirmed to strengthen and advance that at a time when the administration seems determined to make deep cuts to state and USAID. I do believe that China and Russia seek to advance their form of government uh, uh, more widely and that that is pernicious, uh, contrary to U.S. interests. Um, I think if you look all around the borders, particularly of Russia, it's important that we build the resilience of those societies that are vulnerable uh, internally and externally to that kind of uh, penetration. Um, so I, I'm very committed to that as well. I also believe that it's important that human rights be an integrated part at the core of our national security strategies for a range of countries, stretching from North Korea to Burma, uh, to the part of the world I am now working in, uh, all the way to the Western Hemisphere, Nicaragua and uh, Venezuela, Cuba as well. One of the real tragedies of the last um, many years now uh, is the brutal war in Syria and Assad's massacre of um, hundreds of thousands of his own people. Um, I'd be interested in whether you believe we can work with the Russians uh, to counter and reduce the Iranian presence in Syria uh, and to prevent advanced weaponry from reaching Hezbollah and other Iranian proxies, uh, and whether you think uh, the State Department and the President um, should and can be clear with Russia um, that they bear responsibility for enabling Assad's uh, massacre of his own people. I agree completely. I think we must be clear about Russian responsibility as well as Iranian responsibility for what's happened there. Uh, I also believe that we should try to work with the Russians to see if we can uh, help build a better Syria. I understand the Russians have come to us to seek assistance because neither Russia nor Iran has the wherewithal to rebuild that society, which will be essential if there is going to be peace and stability. But we should not be rushing without assistance until it's clear that there is a game plan that will stabilize that country, eliminate the presence of Iranian troops, and put the future, political future of that society in the hands of its people. Do you think a withdrawal of American troops uh, or support or advisors uh, from Syria would be wise or would advance that policy? Well, my understanding, uh, sir, is that, if, uh, that they're there because of the, to deal with the primary problem of the ISIS threat. Uh, that, that was the justification for the deployment. I think once we've accomplished that goal, we have not yet, we're getting closer, it would be appropriate to review our, our Syria policy, including uh, that aspect of it. Um, well, I'll simply renew a point made uh, forcefully earlier by the ranking member that um, the administration has so far failed to deliver any clear policy uh, strategy around Iran. Um, I'm gravely concerned about Iran's um, steady projection of force farther and farther uh, into the region and um, its sustained presence in Syria. Um, and I think finding ways that we can um, help rebuild Syrian society, help stabilize Syrian society, but do so within our values and our interests um, is a key challenge uh, for the State Department. Uh, Ambassador, thank you for your willingness to take on um, a very uh, difficult service, and thank you for the ways in which um, I, I know we can count on you to be an advocate for the career professionals of our State Department, uh, folks who do wonderful work around the world every day. Still discussing the rescission issue that was brought up on the front end. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, Ambassador Hale, thank you uh, for uh, your willingness to serve. I look forward to supporting your nomination as it uh, moves forward. Uh, you're a, a good and, and, and wise choice. Um, uh, last week, uh, we were all uh, horrified by reports that the U.S. supported uh, Saudi-led bombing campaign. Uh, hit a school bus in northern Yemen, resulting in the death of dozens of children 
the initial response from the Saudi coalition was that this was a legitimate military target, which is patently ridiculous. They now have hunkered down and are refusing to answer more questions pending an investigation. Uh, as you note, um, there's an obligation in existing law that any U.S. participation in foreign military operations comports with, um, uh, with basic humanitarian uh, laws, uh, notwithstanding the question of whether the president is going to comply with the provisions of the National Defense Authorization Act. That's already the law. The Saudis are going to undertake a investigation, which I think we understand what the end result will be, a vindication of the Saudis. Um, but in order to comply with our own statutes, we need to be investigating as well. And there's no sign, as far as I can tell, that we are undergoing a comprehensive investigation of this atrocity or the many others that have com been committed this year. Uh, we've uh, had a number of civilian targets hit, potentially intentionally, this year with bombs paid for by the United States, a bombing campaign um, supported by the United States. How important is it that the United States do our own investigation? What do you know about uh, the scope of any investigation that we may be contemplating on the school bus bombing, but writ large uh, on a bombing campaign that seems to be getting worse, not better? At some point, we have to believe our eyes, not what we're being told about the uh, ability of the Saudis to target effectively. Well, I do think this is a key matter, Senator, so thank you for raising it. Um, as a nominee, I... I Confess I'm not fully briefed on the details of what we're doing. I do understand that there is engagement with the Saudis at a fairly high level uh, to discuss this episode and to find out what's happened. I wouldn't describe that as an investigation, uh, but I understand what you're saying, and if confirmed, I will certainly follow up vigorously to make sure that we're doing everything to be in accordance with the law and to understand the facts, which is necessary in order to be in accordance with the law. Do you think it's sufficient to rely on a Saudi investigation and take their findings at face value, or do you think we have an independent uh, um, obligation to do our own fact-finding? Again, I, I don't know the ins and outs of what as our, our obligations are in terms of the law, but I certainly believe that we have to come to our own conclusions about the facts. That I certainly agree with. Uh. Um, uh, turning to your service in the Middle East, you served in two posts, um, uh, countries that took on uh, an enormous burden in the aftermath of the Syrian civil war, uh, taking refugees in both formally and informally to Jordan and Lebanon. Um, can you speak to uh, the importance of a global response to the continued refugee flows uh, out, of, um, out of Syria? Uh, obviously, um, many of us have grave concerns uh, about this administration's decision to shut down the United States um, willingness to bring refugees, which simply puts more burden onto already challenged uh, regimes in the region. What did you see firsthand with respect to um, the ability of countries in that region to continue to handle refugee flows? They've reached saturation point, uh, particularly Lebanon. Um, Lebanon has a weak state to begin with, so its capacity to deal with these kinds of crises is very, very limited. Uh, they're dependent upon the UN agencies that are able to respond to this, but the uh, level of funding that they're able, those agencies are able to devote are not sufficient to the need. Um, and that, of course, pushes people into desperate situations, which is not to be desired. I worry particularly about the long-term effect of recruitment of extremists in these camps uh, for obvious reasons, young people who are not in school uh, and not uh, earning incomes. Jordan has a little more resilience to it. Uh, it's a stronger state. Um, and uh, I think it's been terribly important that international donors and partners step up to the plate and be generous in dealing with this because the problem will not go away on its own. Ultimately, a political solution in Syria, though, is the answer. What does it say about our seriousness uh, about solving the problems inside Syria and around Syria when the United States uh, now effectively refuses to take Syrian refugees uh, into our country? Well, I think that the, um, we have a long-standing commitment to bring a certain number of refugees into the country, including Syrians, and I, I understand that will continue. I think we also need to focus, though, on the, the domestic political problem inside Syria. Uh, resolving that will bring back the flows of these millions of refugees who will not find a home in Europe and not find a home in America. Uh, that, that has to be our primary focus at the State Department. Great. Again, thank you for your willingness to take up this very important uh, post. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Thank you. Senator Menendez stepped out for a moment. I want to check with him to see if he has additional questions uh, before we move on. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very briefly. Ambassador, uh, let me ask you two other questions. Uh, one of the chairman's hallmark legacies here is the work on human trafficking, which I have joined him in. And that leads to the sanity of the TIP report, which you and I discussed. Uh, if confirmed, how will you work to ensure the credibility of the TIP report? I believe based on experience in my three previous uh, assignments as ambassador and the objectivity and value, the, the value of that report and the value of it is based on its objectivity. Um, foreign governments need to know that this is a, an objective standard and it is inescapable to face the consequences of not being able to meet the, these high standards. Um, it's a very effective tool in that regard. Mm -hmm. And uh, with reference, how are you going to balance the, the large footprint of the regional bureaus with the much less resources and weaker JTIP offices to ensure that the TIP office's recommendations are given serious consideration? I'll communicate from day one to the regional bureaus that this is a matter that requires objective assessment. Um, and then when these, if there are split decisions, split memos that come up for decision where there are differences of opinion between the regional bureau and JTIP, I'll be part of the effort to re uh, resolve those differences, and I will do it in the spirit that, uh, of which I'm describing today. Mm -hmm. Let me move very quickly to uh, a question of democracy and human rights, which has been uh, the hallmark of what I've done for 26 years in the uh, House and the Senate as part of, part of U.S. foreign diplomacy. Do you believe that promoting democracy and human rights abroad is in the U.S. national interest? I do. And... Uh, how will you, within the context of uh, the P process, make sure that our democracy and human rights advocacy as part of our foreign diplomacy is being effectuated? Again, day one, in talking to the staff of the bureaus, I, I will include human rights as one of our core responsibilities to promote overseas. And then going forward to make sure that it's an integrated core element of our strategies in those key countries where human rights are at risk. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, I have one or two other questions that I'm going to submit for the record, but uh, it is rare that I can say at this part of a hearing that I look forward to supporting your nomination. And, um, and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for giving me the few minutes. Ambassador, you have no idea how rare that is. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for you. Uh, I did make an allusion. I, I usually wait until the end to see if questions uh, uh, were not asked. I, I made a statement uh, my own opening comment about using some type of methodology to determine how we allocate uh, in a country, for instance, various uh, embassies and consulates, how they're set up, how they're staffed. My sense is that you and our staff had a long conversation about that, but I wonder if you might uh, address that since you haven't yet today. Well. Mr. Chairman, I, I really appreciate the question and your interest in that because it's something I've also thought about over my career. Um, we could introduce more rigor. There have been initiatives to try to do so over the years. Uh, perhaps it's better now than it was decades ago. Much is left to our chiefs of mission. So I think your job in confirming ambassadors and making sure that they understand the priority that you just laid out is very important. Uh, but I, I would like to work very much with your staff and with uh, this committee uh, to introduce that kind of, uh, of transparency um, as well as rigor in assessment of our resources. And I'd like to bring up one other point the uh, ranking member alluded to. There's been an effort, this committee unanimously and then the Senate and House both have supported an effort to end modern slavery around the world. Um, it's, a, it's an effort to create leverage. It's an effort to bring governments, individuals around the world together to try to, to end modern slavery. We have 27 million people at a minimum today that, that live in slavery. And so we've been able to put together and pass legislation that builds upon matching funds so that we're able to leverage those efforts. Last year, the U.S. government put $25 million into this fund. That was matched 
uh, by the United Kingdom. They actually put in 20,000 pounds, or excuse me, euros, and I think that was actually more than ours. Uh, there's an effort again this year to do the same. There are individuals around the world that are looking to come together with us to create a, a billion and a half dollar fund, uh, mostly not U.S. dollars. Over a seven-year period, it's hopeful that U.S. dollars will be about 250 million, so it would be leveraged hugely, and it's very difficult to do that, as you know, inside government, so you have to do that outside, otherwise other governments won't come together with us, nor individuals. What happens when these types of efforts take place? There's an RFP effort, and, and you know, obviously there are people in our community here in Washington and other places that participate sometimes in trying to garner State Department funds. Uh, I think that's perfectly appropriate. I would just say, though, that keeping this together so that it's leveraged uh, on a three-to-one basis, actually on a seven-to-one basis by other people is very important. Otherwise, we will never be successful. This effort is to, to really use best practices to help people all around the world deal with this issue. And if we start uh, watering it down and have multiple minor entities uh, underway with this, then, then in essence, we're going to be very unsuccessful. I just wanted you to be aware of this, and I know that this is dealt with by other entities within the State Department, but it, it is something that's it's pretty rare around here. This committee operates in a very bipartisan way. This was uniformly um, supported, and I hope that you'll be aware of that, and also constantly as you meet with people, uh, bring up the concerns that all of us have here relative to trafficking persons and the fact that we have more people living in slavery today around the world than at any time in the world's history. Well, you make a very compelling case, uh, Mr. Chairman, and if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and others to do exactly what you described. Well, thank you. I, I, I know we met yesterday and our staff has met with you extensively, and I want to second the ranking member's comments. I have had differences with the administration on numbers of issues, um, but I will say the people that are coming into leadership positions uh, by Secretary Pompeo to me have been almost uniformly outstanding, um, and it's really heartwarming to see the kind of talent and professionalism uh, that is being brought into the State Department from the outside. But it's even more heartwarming, heartwarming in, many case, in this case to see someone from the inside who's been there so many years ascending to this position. And I hope you have a very speedy confirmation. Thank you for being here. We hope to, to mark you up and send you out very soon. Thank you for your service. And with that, uh, questions will be open until close of business tomorrow. I know you know that well, and I'm sure you're going to answer those questions promptly. And we look forward to, to moving along. The meeting's adjourned. Thank you.